morning and turn with me to the book of Esther. I want to continue our study in the book of Esther this morning. Esther chapter 2. Esther chapter 2. Someone has once said, God is preparing his heroes, and when the opportunity comes, he can fit them into their places in a moment, and the world will wonder where they came from. Now this fits our theme in the book of Esther, and that is the amazing providences of God. God is never surprised by circumstances. Now we might be, but God isn't. God is not surprised at the loss for prepared servants. Now, you remember, he had Joseph ready in Egypt, Ezekiel and Daniel in Babylon. He had Nehemiah in Shushan, and he had Esther ready for her ministry to the Jews in the Persian Empire. So as we come to chapter 2 of Esther, notice with me, first of all, the agreement of the king. Verse 1, after these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus was appeased, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what was decreed against her. Now, the first thing we notice in this verse, verse 1, is after these things. The king returns to his palace without Vashti. He realizes now how lonely he is. And according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, the king himself, though he was a supreme ruler, was not able to change his own law. Vashti is forever set aside. The laws of the Medes and Persians could not be altered. Look at verse 2. Then said the king's servants that ministered unto him, Let there be fair young virgins sought for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather together all the fair young virgins unto Shushan the palace, to the house of the women, unto the, the custody of Higi, the king's chamber, chamberlain, keeper of the women, and let their things for purification be given them, and let the maiden which was which pleaseth the king be queen instead of Vashti, and the thing pleased the king, and he did so. Now, those who were around him, his cabinet, I suppose you could call them, they were the rulers who were with him, they occupied the high positions, and they began to notice how moody this king is, how lonely he is. And so they make this suggestion. Knowing the king's strong sensual appetite, the counselor suggests he assemble a new Hiram. I guess you could say, I uh, pronounce that Hiram, it should be harem. Probably understand that word better than the one I said first. Sometimes I surprise that's what comes out of my mouth. This is really, someone has called this a beauty contest here. But uh, I don't think this is really a beauty contest because these women were most likely forced against their will to be a part of this royal harem. And although we've been given a few details about the process here, we must remember this is a pagan kingdom. And no doubt uh, there were some immoral activities taking place. 
The Bible tells us in Proverbs 21, verse 1, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. Now, this doesn't mean that God forced Ahasuerus to go through with this plan that he, uh, or that he approved of the king's harems or his sensual abuse of women. Because that's really what it was. It simply means that without being the author of their sin, God so directs people in this situation that decisions were made that will accomplish God's purposes. You know, the decisions that are made today in the high places of our government and the finance seem to be remote from the everyday lives of God's people. But you know what? They affect us, don't they? And God, they affect God's work in many ways. We're seeing that more and more. But it's good to know that God is on the throne and that no decision that is made can thwart his purposes. I'm reminded of Daniel, Daniel chapter 4 and verse 35, where it says, And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? And so we find this agreement here of the king, and uh, this agreement is to begin to look for a new queen. And he's going about it by forming a new harem, putting these uh, girls together and choosing which one he's going to have as his queen. Now, we find here, secondly, the choosing of Esther. Notice verse 5 is really where this story begins. It says, Now in Shushan, the palace was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shemei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. The first thing that we might wonder is, what in the world is this Jew doing in a pagan kingdom? Well, you know, remember, God permitted his people to return to their own land, and as he prophesied through Isaiah, and Cyrus was to give a decree to permit them to return, and those and those who were uh, there were in the will of God who would return to Palestine. And yet very few, less than 60,000, returned to their homeland. The greater number of them made a place for them in the land of their captivity. Now these who made them a a place in the land of their captivity, many of them were out of the will of God when they chose to remain in captivity or in that land of captivity. I believe Mordecai was one of them. He should have been back in the land, but of all places, notice where he's at, he's in the palace. He had a political job. Remember, Joseph also had a political job in Egypt. And yet he was in the will of God directly. And we're going to be talking about that quite a bit this morning. Being in the will of God directly or being out of the will of God indirectly. Remember, Daniel was in the court of Babylon. But you know, Daniel was in the will of God. But here, Mordecai is not in the will of God, the direct will of God. Remember also, the book of Esther is the book of the providence of God, and providence means God dealing with men. This man, Mordecai, is going to be brought home, although he's out of the will of God, and although he's not really looking for God to help him. Even at the time when you think he and his people would turn to God, they do not. 
Now, again, we remind you there is no mention of God in this book. We don't find any prayer in this book. You say, why is this book in the Bible? <laughs> well, it's a, it's a book about God's people, even though they're out of the will of God and how God worked to bring them to where they were supposed to be. Mordecai was taken captive, probably at a young age, in the second deportation of, of captives that left, left Jerusalem. That was during the reign of Jeconiah, as we see in verse 6, who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity, which was carried away with Jeconiah, the king of Judah, with whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. The first deportation that left Jerusalem was made up of the princes, the nobility, the upper class. Daniel was in that group. The second captivity took place of the upper middle class, and I think it was Mordecai that was in this group. Now verse 7 it says, And he brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother, and the maid was fair and beautiful, whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took her, or took for his own daughter." Here we have Mordecai's young cousin whose parents, or young niece, I guess you could say, whose parents may have been slain in Nebuchadnezzar's taking the city, for many of them were killed. And her Hebrew name, name is Hadessah, and he adopted her as his own daughter. Notice also in this verse, she had one asset, and that was her beauty. Too often, the devil gets so much of what that is, which is beautiful in this world, but beauty is God's handiwork, and it's wonderful to see that it can be dedicated to him. Now we come to the entry of Esther, verse 8. And so it came to pass, when the king's commandment and his decree was heard, when many maidens were gathered together unto Shushan, the palace, to the custody of Haggai, the Est, that Esther was brought also under the king's house to the custody of Haggai, a keeper of the women. And the maiden pleased him, and she obtained kindness of him, and he speedily gave her things for purification with such things as belonged to her, and seven maidens which were to uh, meet to be given to her out of the king's house, and he preferred her and, her and her maids under the best place of the house of the women. Once again, we see the providence of God here at work. When the maidens were gathered together in the palace, Esther is among them, and it's no accident that she pleases the king. Verse 10 says, Esther had not showed her people nor her kindred, for Mordecai had charged her that she should not show it. I think there's something very interesting. You remember that they were a captive people. Anti-Semitism was always been a curse in the nations of the world, and it has been is in this nation as well. You cannot read the account of Nebuchadnezzar's destruction of Jerusalem without realizing uh, the hatred that they had for the Jewish people. It was he who brought them to Babylon, and he was off the scene now, but there's a new nation in charge, and yet this hatred for the Jews remains, and Mordecai, being very sensitive to that, warns Esther not to reveal her nationality. And this silence is the same as the denial of her religion. Religion is the thing that identified these people down through the years. 
But the moment Mordecai and Esther denied their nationality, they denied their religion as well. You remember Jonah, when he uh, got on that ship to Tarshish, he did the same thing. He had not revealed his nationality nor the fact that he believed and worshipped the living and true God. And in going to Tarshish, he was out of the will of God because they had not, uh, they didn't have a witness for God. It's interesting to note today that uh, when men and women are out of the will of God, they don't want to have to, uh, they don't say much about their faith in Christ. People who are out of the will of God are kind of ashamed. Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. They don't want to talk about it. Mordecai isn't resting upon God at all. He doesn't turn to him in prayer. Like I said, this, this book has nothing to say, uh, doesn't mention the name of God. It doesn't mention that they prayed. But notice what verse 11 says, And Mordecai walked every day before the court of the women's house to know how Esther did and what should become of her. Here's a man out of the will of God. He's pacing up and down, nervously biting his fingernails, wondering how these things are come out. And he has not, nor can be, put into God's hands. And I'm sure he knew everything about the providence of God. But God is overruling in this. Remember our definition of the providence of God, the way God leads the man who will not be led. We see God beginning to move at this particular time. It's no accident that Esther is given the most prominent place. She's shown every favor. She's given every consideration. You see, there are no accidents with God. Even though here you have some people, they're out of the will of God, yet God is working and putting them in a place where he can use them. And so we come to the preparation of Esther in verse 12. Now when every maid's turn was come to go into the king Ahasuerus, after that she had been twelve months, according to the manner of women, for so were the days of their purification accomplished, to wit, six months with oil of myrrh, and six months with sweet odors, and with other things for the purifying of the women. We notice the type of beautification that takes place here. And listen, men, if your wife spends a few hours in a beauty parlor, or a few extra minutes getting ready for the day, we ought not to complain. These women took a whole year. The first six months, they went to the perfumers. Get all uh, stinking pretty, you know, or pretty stinking, or something like that. Maybe they even swam in it, I don't know. They had a big, maybe they had a big pool of perfume in order to prepare to go and present themselves to the king. You can see the tremendous emphasis that is placed here on the physical. And that's typical for a pagan culture. Now, what does that say about our own culture? Do we not have a great emphasis on the physical today? You don't have to watch very much TV or commercials to know that they're talking about bodybuilding, beauty aids, cosmetic, and we could go on and on and on. That's the big emphasis of our day. You got to look good, right? And with all the beautifying treatments, it's disappointing we don't have more beauty today. But these girls went through an entire year of body or beauty conditioning for the king. Let's go to verse 14. In the evening she went, and on the morrow she returned in the second house of the women of the custody of Sheashgaz, the king's chamberlain, 
which kept the concubine, she came in unto the king no more, except the king delighted in her, and that she were called by, by name. Notice, this is really an awful chance that she takes. If she was not chosen, she had become a concubine of the king for, of Persia, which certainly would have been a horrible thing for a Jewish girl. And this is the reason that Mordecai is not really uh, very calm about this. I think he's probably biting his fingernails and so forth. He's out of the will of God. He's taken an awful chance with this girl whom he raised. And yet God is in control. I'm not sure he knew that. But we know that. And so we come to the opportunity of Esther. God is going to overrule. Verse 15. Now when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, whom had taken her for his daughter, was come to go in unto the king, she required nothing but what Haggai, the king's chamberlain, the keeper of the women appointed. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all them that looked upon her. So Esther was taken into the king Ahasuerus, unto the house royal in the tenth month, which is in the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther above all the women, and obtained, she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Esther won the favor of everybody who saw her. And when the king saw her, he responded with the, a greater enthusiasm than he had to any of the other women. The phrase here, the king loved Esther, must not be interpreted to mean that Ahasuerus had suddenly fallen in love with Esther with a pure and devoted affection. He was attracted to her more than any woman. And if you want to read a real story of of love in the Bible, you need to go to the book of Ruth. You read about Ruth and Boaz, which is a picture of Christ's love for the church, and it's illustrated also in Ephesians chapter 5. Here we do not find that quality. This is just an old, disappointed king who wanted to satisfy his sensual lust. I'm reminded of a foreigner who came to this country and asked, what's all this about the three R's Uh, I keep hearing about? Someone gave him an answer. He said, at 20, it's romance. At 30, it's rent. And at 50, it's rheumatism. (laughs) Well, I think that's what this old pagan king had. He didn't have any knowledge of the real love that God meant for a, a couple to have. This is not a picture of Christ's love for the, picture, uh, for the church. But no doubt it was a part of God's plan. Wanted Esther in the royal palace where she could intercede for her people. Now we might think it's thrilling to see this girl belonging to a captive people suddenly become the queen uh, over one of the greatest Gentile empires that had ever been. We think, well, that's great. The hatred of the Jews uh, that was present would completely destroy these people, and God's entire purpose with Israel would have been frustrated when this hatred strikes. And so Esther is in a very unique position. How did she get there? By the providence of God. Now, like I said, I don't believe she's in the direct will of God. Mordecai wasn't in the direct will of God. I don't think they should have been there. But God put them there. 
It was God who moved her into this place. She was not in the direct will of God. The Mosaic law was very clear that she or any of her people were not to marry a Gentile. She was disobeying God's laws at this time. And here I believe there's a great lesson for God's people today. There are many things in this world that God's people are doing, and they're doing them out of God's will. But in spite of that, God is going to overrule and he's going to make it work for his glory and the fulfillment of his purpose. You say, well, what kind of things are you talking about, Pastor? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Last week, we talked about social drinking. I don't think that's God's will. How many people, even Christians, don't see anything wrong with it? Last week, we talked about anger. How people are trying to cover up anger by saying, well, it's righteous indignation. When in reality, it's just plain old anger and wrath that hurts other people. Let me give you some other examples. You think I'm getting off the beaten path here, but what about women preachers? Are they scriptural? No, I do not believe women preachers are scriptural. There are many passages in support of this statement. You know, you might think, well... Yeah, how do you explain how many of them have been used to lead others to Christ and apparently blessed of God? I saw an article where Joyce Meyer uh, saw 5,000 people saved in her, her uh, ministry, uh, in her one of her meetings. 5,000. You say, wow. Again, I think we should realize that in spite of the fact that it's not God's will for there to be women preachers, God will bless his word when it's given out. And I thank God for godly ladies who are fulfilling the role that God has given them in his word, as he has done in Titus chapter 2 and other passages. There is a place for women to teach children and older women to teach the younger women how to live godly. But there is no scriptural basis for women preachers. What about men like Billy Graham? Now, I know he's not very active anymore. But what about men like him? Joel Olstein, for instance. They're reaching thousands and thousands of people. By the way, Joel Olstein came out with a book, I don't know, sometime recently. I just uh, realized uh, what it's called The Power of I Am. And he takes that I Am, which is a name for God, and he applies it to us. And he says, I am this, I am that, I am, and he's, he's really, I am successful, I am, I, have, I am this, I am that. He's perverting God's word, but he's reaching thousands and thousands of people. Now, I don't believe these kind of men are in God's will, this direct will. Their methods, and often their message is not scriptural. And the so-called, even counselors that Billy Graham had, were coached to come forward during the invitation to make it look as like there was a great response. You know, I was a, a kid, I, I listened to Billy Graham, and I thought, boy, he's really preaching up a storm tonight. Listen to him on TV. Look at all those people getting saved. Now, if you got saved attending a Billy Graham crusade or listening to him on TV, praise God for that. I'm not saying you didn't get saved. I'm just saying God can use his word to reach people, even though these men I would not promote. 
hey, what about cooperating with other churches in our community? You know, I haven't really sensed that the pressure from our community, so-called, if there is such an organization, a ministerial alliance, but I have in other churches that I've pastored, not much pressure to join up with other churches in this community. Maybe the uh, uh, pastors that have preceded me have made it clear that we don't get involved in ecumenical efforts here in Spooner, and I'm thankful for that. I haven't had to fight that battle, but there are other cities where I've pastored. I've been invited to go to monthly ministerial meetings, and yet if, if not many, most would deny the fundamental doctrines of the Bible. Yet someone might say, well, there are people in these churches who are saved. Is not God blessing them as well? Let me say this, and I know some would say, uh, we think sometimes, you know, we as Baptists, we're better than everybody else. But if we do not believe that our church is correctly teaching and preaching the Bible, you know what? We're wasting our time. Why are we here? Listen, there are churches in our community that do deny the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, who deny the necessity of Christ's shed blood for the remission of sins, that deny the principles and standards for Christian separation from the world, and so they are not in the direct will of God. And it's not just because we call ourselves independent Baptists that makes us right. Even churches with good names and constitutions can get out of God's will. And because of the leadership and the people, they get out of the will of God. And any time you get out of the will of God, you refuse to obey God's clear commands and the principles of God's word, you're not right. Does that mean that God will not bless, that God will not do a work? No, many times in spite of our sin, he blesses and he works out his purpose according to his glory. And I think that's the lesson that we see here in the book of Esther. Does that mean we have a perfect church? No. One day someone approached Charles Spurgeon, and Spurgeon inquired why the gentleman had not united with the church. And he said, well, I started to join the church, but I looked around and I saw a hypocrite. And so I decided not to join. Spurgeon replied, well, in the first church, the leader Peter cursed, Thomas doubted the resurrection, Judas the treasurer betrayed the Lord. The first church was not perfect, and furthermore, I've never seen a church that is perfect. But sir, if you ever find a perfect church, please do not join. For when you do become a member, it will no longer be perfect. (laughs) You know, there are many things today that are not in accordance to God's will. But you know what? He overrules them for his glory. Esther was absolutely disobeying God. But that did not mean that she was out of the control and the care of Almighty God. Now, if you remember, we spoke of a number of banquets and feasts, and we have here another one in verse 18. Then the king made a great feast unto all his princes and his servants, even Esther's feast, and he made a release to the provinces and gave gifts according to the state of the king. This was Esther's feast. She was now the lovely queen to take Vashti's palace, or place in the palace, and king suspended taxes for a year. Way, hey, man. Can you imagine that? What if a president did that today? Suspended taxes for a year. We'd elect him for life. If we could. 
It's interesting to see that kings did have authority to suspend taxes for a year. Look at verse 19. And when the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai sat in the king's gate. Sitting in the king's gate meant that Mordecai had a new position, not a job, it was a position. It means he's a judge. For the courthouse of the ancient world was the gate of the city. Most of the cities were walled and out through the gate, all the citizens would pass sooner or later. And so court would convene at the city gate, not at the courthouse down in the, in the town square. But the city gate was a place where they would ha- hold court. And Mordecai was a judge. The city gate, gate was the, also the place where Boaz went to have a legal matter taken care of. And also it said of the Lord when he sat in the gate, which meant that he had gotten into uh, uh, into politics in, uh, or I should say not the Lord, but of Lot, said of Lot that he sat in the gate, which meant that he had gotten into the politics in Sodom and he had a judgeship there. But notice here is Mordecai. Isn't it interesting that Esther becomes queen and the next thing you know, Mordecai is a judge sitting in the gate. There's a term for that. It's called nepotism. Getting your relatives into office. That's what happened here. Now, I don't know whether Mordecai was made a judge because of his ability or because Esther whispered in the king of the year, uh, king's ear and said, you know, this man Mordecai, he's like a father to me. And the king may have said, well, that's interesting. We've just got an opening for a judge over there at the east gate. And I'll give him that position. You know, politics hasn't changed much, has it? Verse 20. Esther had not yet showed her kindred nor her people as Mordecai had charged her, for Esther did the commandment of Mordecai like as when she was brought up with him. I think Esther is a remarkable person here. She takes instructions from the man who raised her. Mordecai was also a man of amazing ability. And so that brings us to the reign of Esther. In verse 21, And 22, it says here, In those days, while Mordecai sat in the king's gate, two of the king's chamberlains, Bigthan and Teresh, of which kept the door, were wroth and sought to lay hand on the king of Hazareris. And the king was known to, or the thing was known unto Mordecai, who told it unto Esther the queen. And Esther certified the king thereof in Mordecai's name. And so here we find something that seems rather incidental, But yet it's really important that the whole book really hinges on this. Someone has said, God swings big doors on little hinges. And this is an important part right here. And again, we see the providence of God. He's moving behind the scenes. It's a very familiar picture, an oriental king with some sneaking fellows hiding behind some pillars maybe, plotting against the king. And for this culture, this was not uncommon. It seems to be uh, that there was always someone after the king's job. Again, we see the providence of God. Mordecai's new position gained him a vantage point, and so he was able to overhear the plot. And in verse 22, uh, we, we see uh, what takes place here. The thing was known to Mordecai. He told it to Esther the queen, and Esther certified the king thereof in the Mordecai's name. 
Perhaps Esther said to the king, you remember that I recommended Mordecai to the, be a judge and you see that he's already doing a very excellent job? Well, he's discovered a plot against your life. Verse 23. And when inquisition was made about the matter, it was found out. Therefore, they were both hanged on a tree and it was written in the book of the Chronicles before the king. A full-scale investigation is ordered. The plot has found out. Both men are hung. No trial. Just, you know, it's like the Old West. We don't, uh, we don't do cattle rustlers, give them a trial. We just hang them. Well, that's what happened here. No trial. But notice the last sentence there. The incident was written in the book of the Chronicles before the king. Now, it's interesting to see that something seems to be omitted here. Mordecai was not rewarded for doing something that was really very important. Maybe uh, Mordecai pouted a bit and felt sorry for himself, wondering, you know, why in the world was I ignored? But you know what? Again, God is in control. And again, we're reminded of the theme of this book, the providence of God. There's an idea by some today that if circumstances are not favorable, God is not in them. If the world is being overrun by terrorists, and there is maybe some questionable, if not bad, leadership in our government, well, God's not in it. On a personal level, someone might think, you know, they're out of the will of God because of a difficulty or because there's obstacles in my life, I must be out of God's will. But you know, circumstances are not always an indication of being out of God's will. Or the condition of our world or our government does not, government does not mean that God doesn't know what's going on. Because God often uses trials and difficulties and circumstances and yes, even evil governments to move in the lives of men and women. Now how shall we thank God for his providential dealings in the affairs of man? Well, we can take this little book of Esther. We can trace his hand throughout the whole entire book and yet we cannot find his handwriting The people involved were totally unaware that it was God who was directing it. And yet, in every turn of events, he's leading and he's guiding. And God has not taken his hand off of this earth. It may seem as though he did. But he has not. And God has not taken his hand off of your life or my life. Perhaps you or someone in your family is going through some very difficult times. It doesn't make sense. And you're wondering why God is allowing these trials to come our way. Perhaps you've even thought, God doesn't care about me. He doesn't care about my situation. But let me tell you this morning, He does. God cares for everyone, every person in this room life. He cares about your situation. He knows about your situation. He's in control. He simply wants us to put our faith and our trust in Him.
Not only for salvation, but our everyday living. Trust Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you.